In March of 2014, an aircraft with 239 people on board lost contact with the ground and vanished off the face of the earth. Over a year later, parts of debris will start washing up to the shore. Due to the conclusions made by the officials, the conspiracy theories about the flight MH370 continue to run rampant. Could the past searches offer us an explanation as to what happened in the air during the night of the 8th of March 2014, or do we need more information in order for one of the theories to become the reality? This is the story of the disappearance of the Malaysian Airlines flight MH370. The last time I have had a script this long in front of me was for a Marilyn Monroe video and all of those uh, parters lasted for three hours. There's like nine hours on this channel on Marilyn Monroe, okay? Just saying, if you didn't know, now you do. By the way, just so you don't call me out in the comments about like weird things, if you spot by any chance, well, I don't know why I would be raising my arms like this here, like this in the gym, if you spot like the markings on, on my hand, it's from Sainsbury's bags, because the girl <laughs> leaves the she wears them on her like jewelry. She does it. It's just weird. You also don't wear Sainsbury's bags. Like imagine that fashion statement. Or just like Sainsbury. Why would you know the orange? Orange is the worst color in the world. If your favorite color is orange, I don't know that you exist. I'm not gonna lie. I don't think that you are a human. I don't know a single human whose favorite color is orange. Okay, we left that for the mic track. Let's dive in. Why color orange? Detective unit, we are all here for the last parter in this case. And because I'm trying to jam insane, insane amount of information in a single parter, I just know it's going to be long. Just looking at the script, I know this is one of the longest scripts ever written. So, a couple of things, and let me tell you how I broke this part down. One thing off top of the bed, like I'm recording these in advance so I wouldn't have seen your comments to part one prior to recording part two is what I'm trying to say. And I just want to make something clear just based off of the comments that I would see on some of the videos when it comes to the mysteries on this channel. I don't and can't claim that this video is going to solve this mystery for you. It's just all of the information I could find online and then structured in a way that makes sense to me. The whole point here is to bring awareness to this case because after it kind of going standstill since really 2018, but also after this mystery has remained a mystery for nine years, it's really just not in the news anymore as much as you would think it is or will be. There was the Netflix documentary that maybe a lot of you who are here have watched that kind of brought it back to the spotlight here and there were, well, there was one article really that was then just copy-pasted in 2023 that I will mention. However, this story just kind of died down and that's the really sad part because it's still very much unsolved. We still very much have no idea. There are theories in line that we always speak about, but we have no idea what had happened during this flight. Trigger warning here as well. I am going to try to immerse you into this with as much information as possible, meaning it will be a very detailed video in certain terms, like when it comes to graphic descriptions of certain situations. I will also be playing some footage about the crash and then some flight simulations as well. And obviously the whole topic is very triggering. So if you set out when it comes to part one, I would suggest doing the exact same thing with part two. If you're sensitive to any sort of flight accidents, crashes, disappearances, 
there's plenty of other videos on this channel. So the way that I'm going to structure it to attempt to put a couple of points across, and I'll tell you what points those are in a second, I had scripted this and thought I will structure it in a completely different way. Uh, the way that I have mentioned at the end of part one, where, you know, we'll go through all of the information and then through all of the theories. However, in order to make this a, a better story, but also to put some points across, like the fact that maybe the official theory has a lot of flaws in it, and then also that after this many years, still a lot has not been done and has to be done in order for us to make certain conclusions here. On a bank holiday Monday, I just sat down and I was like, well, the script that you have in front of you right now doesn't do that, doesn't really do the trick. So I scratched everything and then this is how we're structuring it. We're gonna go through the official investigation all the way up until 2018, and then the point of view of the theories once the debris had been found, alleged debris from this aircraft. Those who believe the Inmarsat data and the location of the debris that we might have. So the theories based off of the plane crashing or landing in the southern Indian Ocean area. Then we are going to speak about the end of the searches, the 2018 report that was published, where does this case stand today, the recommendations that were made based on everything that we have spoke about in uh, part one, part two, and finally the point of view of the alternative theories. So the theories that don't believe that right debris was found and still think that South China Sea is where the plane had ended. The further information from Florence's book is going to be included here. So if you really want to know, well, a lot of things that Florence mentions in this book, the book is very long and very detailed, as I have mentioned. However, it contains information that isn't online anywhere. You might want to stick to the end, because I will be including some of the information that I haven't mentioned in part one or part two when we speak about the alternative theories. And this might be the most amount of information I'm trying to fit into one parter, so let us recap part one and immediately start off with a story. In part one, we spoke about 239 passengers on board, including two pilots, their private life controversies, and loose possible motivations as to why they would want to take this plane down. We spoke about the security at the airport, the stolen passports, the no-shows, and the wrong name on the passport. We spoke about cargo, the fruit, and the batteries that had raised suspicion, and the whole consignment of batteries that had not been scanned. Then we focused on the flight, the transponder switching off, and then the air car system switching off, the plane disappearing near South China Sea. We covered the pilot theory on how this would have potentially played out had a pilot been in charge of taking the plane down. And then we spoke about the Inmarsat data. Did the plane actually flew until 8.19 in the morning and crashed in a different spot, Southern Indian Ocean. By the time that you're watching this video, I would have reached out to Florence with a list of questions that I have mentioned through part one, mostly for myself, so that I can write them up as I'm editing the video, and then that I will be mentioning in part two, because there's so many questions that I have not found the answer 
to online. Maybe the Florence hadn't either, based off of me actually having read her book in full. And maybe nobody had. And that is truly the point. Like, oh, how many points have just been neglected or ignored in this whole story? And one of these questions is, from my understanding, the South China Sea surge will end just after two weeks. As soon as they had the Inmarsat data, they would move the searches from South China Sea to so the last point, or contact the last point they have seen, the plane on the radar, to the Indian Ocean, based off of the seventh arc and based off of the data by the British company in Marseille. The question there would be, is that correct information? And also, was there ever any other satellite service provider that was consulted about that in Marseille data? Or did they just completely, blindly trust it and moved all of the searches towards the Indian Ocean? Because from what I have gathered from researching for part one, no other satellite service provider was actually consulted by the officials, and after two weeks of searches in the location where the plane was last spotted on the radar, the searches of the ocean surface and then the sonar searches would all move towards the ocean. And now, picking up from where we left it off in part one, this is still a race against time, because there's still time to find the black boxes, the batteries that are signaling to those sonars, that are signaling to those boats where those black boxes might be, are still working. They still haven't run out of battery. The country that is going to be prevalent in the searches from this moment on will, without any obligation according to the book, without like any legal need to do so, be Australia. The Australian Transport Safety Board, in collaboration with Malaysian and Chinese authorities, is going to start a mission to locate the black boxes signals. Each of the Boeing 777's two flight recorders would have an emergency locator beacon that operates on battery power and begins transmitting when it's submerged in water. And now, by trailing specialized detectors behind the ship, it's possible to detect these signals and locate the aircraft. Australia will not be going off the point of last contact, as I mentioned. However, they will be focusing on the data that they have just received from Inmarsat and examine the most likely paths, selecting the section of the seventh arc, where they believe the plane crashed. And they would start searching for the signals in that region. However, they had limited time, because these pingers were only guaranteed to last 30 days before the battery ran out, and they would certainly not function for more than 40 days. With Australia going against time, there will only be really two articles from this period before the batteries were to run out on those black boxes. Passenger families are so overworked by the lack of reliability of official information that they are going to revolt at a press conference. for families that the Malaysian government is lying and hides information. What is happening on the 28th day of research at sea? We know that black boxes only emit one month, 
strangely, on the 28th day. Two boats hear noises. So to give you the breakdown of the most important points in the Australian surge, there was a report of a signal that lasted over two hours that came out on the 7th of April that said the signal, consistent with transmissions from the black box flight recorder and cockpit voice recorder of the missing flight, was picked up for more than two hours in the Indian Ocean, according to the head of Australia's Joint Agency Coordination Centre. And then on the 9th of April, there was a report of not two, according to like the plane being supplied with two black boxes, rather four pings in the ocean. That in the matter of days, them searching for the signal detected four separate hits on nearly the right frequency, very close to one another. The sonar was immediately deployed to comb the seabed. However, these two reports would be eliminated mostly for two reasons. Wrong frequency and then wrong depth. Florence said about the ping that lasted for 2 hours and 20 minutes, that was most probably an echo from a ship towing the device. Because a black box wouldn't just spring to life and start chasing this little yellow stingy, like the little sonar thing. And then the second report and the four pings, it appeared the distance between these pings was 10 to 14 kilometers. So even if those were to be two of the black boxes, the likelihood that they would be several kilometers away from each other would be very slim. I'm just pointing this example because, yes, it is the main thing that had happened before the batteries were to run out, but the ping myth was really kept alive as the best hope that we have had. And every time any news about it were to be announced, the families would want to believe that they will get the answers. However, despite searching the entire area for several weeks, the team failed to locate the wreckage, leaving investigators disappointed. It later would transpire that the supposed signals from the black boxes were probably not genuine. It had most likely come from the scanning equipment pinging itself. The next stage, after the flight recorder's batteries had expired, would leave investigators with no other option but to undertake a thorough search of a massive area of the seabed along the 7th arc. However, before even starting it, the transport bureau would have to think of a couple of factors. How far along the length of the 7th arc should they search, and how far away in both directions. And then they would also have to take multiple other factors into account. The waves and currents against fuel. Because the depth and distance would depend on was the plane on autopilot as it went into the ocean, or would the pilot be strategically landing it? Based on Inmarsat, if the plane was to be an autopilot, according to Boeing's calculations, the 777 would likely enter a spiral dive and crash into the water within a distance of 20 nautical miles from the point of fuel depletion, so 8.19 in the morning. However, if the pilot was the one who was optimizing the glide, the plane could potentially travel up to 100 nautical miles. So what I gauge from that is they're wondering if the plane had gone deeper, but at a closer point to the 7th arc, or did the plane go further away, if it was strategically kind of glided by the pilot. 
and the belief by the Transport Bureau due to the straight line was that the plane was on autopilot, according to every single article that I have read. To tell you why, that's a bit confusing, and everything from this point on, like all of the deductions that were made are a bit... Mm, why were those decisions made? So, after analyzing data between the plane and the satellite, officials believe that this flight was on autopilot the entire time it was flying across the vast expanse of the southern Indian Ocean. Asked whether the autopilot would have been manually switched off, the person that was heading the transport bureau said the basic assumption would be that if the autopilot is operational, it's because it's been switched on. Based on this assumption, the transport bureau assumed that the plane had spiraled in and crashed near the seventh arc. And this decision, the decision to focus on a smaller set of searches to begin with, was made due to the lack of funding, which prevented the expansion of the search area beyond 100 nautical miles. However, so this is what I found in the articles at the time and how they based their search, focusing on a smaller area. But in the official report, the one of like 500 pages from 2018, it says, later flight simulator trials established that the turn back was likely made while the aircraft was under manual control and not the autopilot. If that is true, the Australians might have searched the wrong area all along. From the maps that I could find, you can then see that the priority search area was in purple. Then they expanded it, like after a couple of months, and that would be showing in light pink, and then the wide search in 2015 would be showing kind of as a rectangle surrounding this whole area. You can also see the traffic light pattern of highest probability versus lowest, and where they focused on the seafloor searches. Based off of the data that they had had, 334 air patrols were carried out, and a total of 3,000 hours of air search. Then there was 10 civilian aircrafts, 19 military aircrafts, and 14 ships that were used in the operation. The Chinese have said 21 satellites were used, 18 ships, and 5 aircrafts, which had covered a total area of 1.5 million square kilometers. China has also asked 88 Chinese-registered vessels inside the zone to help with the effort. But despite everything, on 28th of April 2014, the searches will come to an end, at least temporarily. The only conclusion that seems to have been made at this point is that 52 days after the crash, most of the debris would have become waterlogged and sunk and they were not giving up. The new search was to be determined, the new search area was to be determined, and new searches were to start in August of 2014. So, let us mention a couple of things, a couple of side googs that I have done here to wrap the Australian searches, because this was my thought process when I read all of the information, like how they were basing these searches, that they were focusing on the seventh arc, and just everything really in general of how the searches will be conducted. So looking at this map, right, back to this map that is going to follow us and really haunted me during this part there. They're going upwards from the looks of it. And pin this in your head because the debris is not going to be found in this area. This is why I'm saying this map is haunting me because they have been searching this area between this point, 2014 and 2018. The debris will not be found here. 
what struck me here, beyond the whole was the plane on autopilot saga, is whether they have taken the currents into consideration at this stage, as the plane would have crashed in March. However, they were still searching the now new last point of contact with the water. They would be searching around this seventh park, and Florence will say later on they did cover 0.2% of the ocean, which, yes, from the sounds of it, isn't huge, however, the ocean is freaking humongous. But it just, whenever you look at these maps, you're like, I don't want to undermine the effort. However, throughout the years, you don't seem to be moving in any direction. You're still searching for things around this area, and it is truly probably because of the conclusions that they have made, which is that the aircraft and the parts of it sunk towards the seabeds, rather than they had spread about. So, I checked the Transport Bureau website, and they have had the FAQs page on there about the searches that they have conducted. So, they do, in these FAQ searches, mention oceanography, and that data that they have had from 27 onwards. Otherwise, it sounds to me, from what I'm putting on screen and highlighting here, that they only focused on the handshakes as the basis of their search, and then refined it once the debris was found, not in the area yet again where they have been searching. And boy, as you go through these FAQs, you realize people had the exact same questions. Like, we all had the same fucking thought process on our mind. Because some of the questions are like, hey, if you found pieces from the aircraft, why wouldn't you just track the ocean currents back to where the aircraft came from? And then they said, well, the research had actually been taken and they had been looking at the drift modeling videos and that is how they based their searches. Then they were asked, why didn't you just make replicas of the pieces that were discovered, scatter them around the ocean search area, you could track them, get a better idea of where to look? Well, their response was that the ocean surface currents are not as constant, so they change continually over time, and with the seasons it would have basically changed where the debris would be located. Apparently, there was a project that they had undertaken in which replicas of the recovered debris were released into the ocean to compare the way different objects travel, and those insights were applied to the drifter data from the time that the airplane was lost. Then there was a question about why no debris would have been found on the Australian beaches, to which their response was, actually, this wasn't that close to Australia. It was closest to Perth, however, not super close, and based off of the currents, that is not where the debris would have ended. We'll speak about that a bit later, but basically the currents would have all been headed towards east, and that would all make sense when it comes to where the debris would pop up. However, then my question here is, why did Australia really take charge to this degree? According to Florence's book, it is because they have had something to prove. It is because they wanted their name and their expertise associated with this search. I don't know about you, but to me it just seems from the answers given that they would expand the searches based on the Inmarsat data and the seventh arc in the ocean, based off of every single answer that I have seen on their website. To go back into our timeline, just before the searches are to be halted temporarily, let us speak about the families, as they would be the ones starting their own funding into the disappearance, for some private agencies to actually 
look into it and conduct their own investigation. So, how this came about was in June of 2014, Sarah Bajek, who is the girlfriend of the passenger Philip Wood, she was approached by the private detective called Ethan Hunt. This guy, again, is written about in the book by Florence, and she does kind of question his credibility, his CV, his searches, like, is it just yet another character who really wants to be connected to this flight and this investigation, rather than, like, a legitimate investigator. So, he contacted Sarah and proposed to crowdfund a 5 million reward for a whistleblower that then could provide information about the missing plane. So, he believed, Ethan believed, that someone within Malaysia Airlines or the government must know what had happened, and that a large reward would encourage that person to come forward. Sarah was convinced with the idea, and at this point everybody was really losing faith into the official investigation, so Ethan had set up the Indiegogo page, and Sarah, on the other end, would be gathering a six-person reward committee, including family members. So, they tried to involve Malaysian and Chinese families in this project, but allegedly they were not interested because they believed the government was doing everything that it could. Sarah and Ethan then created a very short and dramatic video with, like, this eerie music to support it, showing pictures of the missing passengers and the Prime Minister, and then, like, family members sort of holding banners to get their loved ones back. Captions were added to emphasize the incompetence by the official investigations, and you can find it on the Guardian website. I'm not going to play it because I find it to be quite traumatizing. The outcome of this was that they had only actually raised about a hundred thousand, which, yes, isn't nothing. However, it can only go a certain way, as you're about to find out. So, it's no wonder, really, that the families are frustrated and uh, increasingly angry and wanting to take matters into their own hands, and that's exactly what they're doing, offering this reward. It could be as big as $5 million. They're raising the money on a fundraising website called Indiegogo, and the cash will not only be used to, uh, for a reward, it'll also be used to pay private investigators to follow up any leads which may come forward. They are not even convinced that the plane is in the Indian Ocean. Some of the relatives think that the uh, whole operation was uh, uh, covered up from the start. Authorities here in Australia and indeed in Malaysia, though, say they have been 100% transparent. Sarah used this money to hire the private detective agency, and they were supposed to provide regular investigation reports. According to Florence, who was in touch with Ghislaine, they never sent him any, as apparently communication by email was not considered secure. So, Sarah would receive the reports, come through the information, remove any sensitive names, and then pass them on to the other committee members. And it struck Florence as odd that the partner of the only American adult on the flight is having this power, is coming through this information, and deciding on what is vital and what isn't. It raised issues of credibility. And the Malaysian and the Chinese families, who represented three-quarters of the passengers, 
on board had their own organizations and had not really been involved in this reward MH370 initiative. From Florence's meetings with different families, she would say that each group would be guided by their own mindset and influenced by their own context. And speaking of context, here, $100,000, as I said, like won't really go the long way. So the main focus was on why hasn't anyone geolocated these hundreds of mobile phones? And that is something that crossed my mind. If this plane was ever lowered enough, if people don't put their phones on airplane mode, which a lot of people don't do on the planes. Like, why was no tower ever picking up on any of those phones? And why was that data not looked into? I could never find anything online, like Apple, you know, or Samsung, like, looking into this, whether they could recover any pings from any phones. Like, I couldn't find any data, so I don't know if there were ever any attempts made, and that would be the main focus for this private agency. That brings me to the side searches that I have done here that show, well, you know, in South China Sea, but also if we are following the Imarsat data, then in Indian Ocean, there might not be any transmission towers. That's why none of this mobile data would have been collected. However, there's not any indication that any attempt beyond what I'm about to tell you has been conducted to track that data and see if any sort of data from the mobile phones had been tracked, and if so, where? Where in the world were those phones on that plane? The way that the private agency split this assignment would be the objective, the tasks, and then they would conclude with the findings. Their sole objective was to verify the cell phone pings when the plane flew over Penang, and their question was, is it accurate that only the first officer's plane was pinged? The tasks included getting in touch with the tech companies and also obtaining technical information on the phones when the phone would be in flight mode. The findings say that the contacts that they have had already with the telco industry provided conflicting information. That one source stated it's impossible for the phones to give out pink signals once turned off, as they should be when passengers are on board of a flight. Another says that the phone can give out signals when it's off. The writer of the book calls out the mediocrity of these reports whenever she would read anything like this, which is how it sounded. Like, they were like, well, it might be one thing or it might be the other. They were never conclusive. However, then there was a report from December that she will debunk. By the way, don't get too excited. However, at first glance, this report by the private agency did sound like it had some revelatory information. It has stated that the pilot had requested two hours of additional fuel before taking off, without being questioned about his request, and secondly, that the pilot asked specifically to be on this flight, obviously pointing towards the pilot and the pilot theory and the guilt of Zachary Shah. Now, these were debunked because, according to Florence's book, if Zachary was to even just, you know, pick up a phone and just be like, hey, can I have, like, extra fuel, this would have to be approved. But also, we know because of ACARS exactly how much fuel 
was on that flight. Like, because of that reading and because we have had the first transmission from ACARS. So this is also like how they based the Inmarsat data, you know, that the flight had actually ended at 8.19. So we knew how much fuel was on that plane. But then also a follow-up call would be needed if he was to have requested to be the person flying this thing. Like, there would have been inquests into why. Why is he specifically asking instead of being tasked to actually fly that flight? Other findings in this private report would indicate that a captain shot himself inside of the cockpit, that he flew the jetliner to an altitude that was beyond the aircraft's limits in order to lose everyone. They would put the wording like, pilot is safe, not sure who else could have lived. Search was deliberately late because they needed credible excuse. Chinese government was also aware. When it comes to the cargo, they have claimed that it didn't come from Muar, rather that it came from Pakistan. They were also sure of their source of this information. And in conclusion, they just had nothing concrete, but seemed very biased towards one particular scenario. And the question here really is why? Were they the ones to want to sway the families towards this particular scenario and the pilot theory? Or were these private investigators the ones who were influenced by the information that they were getting and the sources they were getting that information from? One of the questions that I actually had for Florence is about this particular period in time and whether there is anything happening on the private investigation front, whether it is with the American families or the Chinese and Malaysian ones. Because from the Guardian article, I have read that Ethan and Sarah have said, and this is back 2014-2015, that the $100,000 that they managed to raise is all gone. It has all been spent with this private agency, and as you have heard, the conclusions were very biased and very limited. So, my question is really, like, had this been picked up from that point on? Is anybody funding any private investigations at this moment in time? Because I haven't read anything like that online since. Before the official searches were to resume, Malaysian Airlines would lose yet another plane. In July of 2014, MH17 was shot down by a missile, meaning that the airline will lose two planes during a six-month period. So, four months following the disappearance of MH370, Malaysian Airlines experienced another tragedy involving a Boeing 777, the exact model as MH370. This flight was en route from Amsterdam to Kuala Lumpur with 298 individuals on board, when it would crash at 4.20 p.m. in eastern Ukraine, resulting in scattered plane debris and human remains over a vast area. The final report from the Dutch Safety Board would be issued eight months after the incident, concluding that the crash was caused by the detonation of a warhead launched from the eastern region of Ukraine using a book missile system. Three men are going to be found guilty, and they will be found guilty in 2022. So this will be the Russian extremists, and this verdict is only going to be brought last year. This will be trial in absentia. These three men are still in the wind, and there will be four. One of them would actually be acquitted of the charges 
owing to the lack of evidence about his role in firing the missile. So the lowdown here is that the court would hand out sentences of life imprisonment to the Russian nationals Igor Gherkin, Sergei Dubinsky, and a Ukrainian, Leonid Karchenko. And they would find them guilty of bringing down the plane and the murder of everybody on board. These men were ordered to pay more than 16 million euros in compensation to the victims. It would be determined that the missile was launched from pro-Russian separatist-controlled territory in Ukraine, that it had been transported from Russia on the day of the crash, fired from a field in a rebel-controlled area, and the launch system was returned to Russia afterwards. To remind you, Malaysian Airlines already wasn't doing well financially. There was a lot at stake, and by accounts of the book and just common sense, losing two passenger planes and having 537 lives on their hands certainly would have had an impact. Airline shutting down, aircraft being under investigation, whole government being looked into, making many people believe if this was a cover-up, it started right away. Everybody is involved, and it sure wasn't going to stop now, with another plane being lost with passengers on board. Florence mentions how even right after disappearance of MH370, politicians were meeting each other, but this would escalate after the second plane had gone down in four months. Obama's visit took place in April 2014, and this would be the first by a U.S. president since 1966. Then the Prime Minister of Malaysia would visit Hawaii to play golf with Obama during Christmas. And nobody seemed to understand why Washington and Kuala Lumpur were suddenly the best of friends. Florence mentions multiple reasons why different countries would have had arrangements with Malaysia for their own personal benefit. Each of these countries seemed to have come to their own specific arrangement with Malaysia for their own reasons. Now, what this would mean for us, speaking of the continuance of the searches, is that the coordination center would be moved to the seat of the political power in Australia. Australian Chief Marshall was given knighthood in January of 2015. And from then on, in Australia, as would be the case in Malaysia, prime ministers and not civil aviation experts would be in charge of the investigation. The case was classified as sensitive, and instead of the politicians only being briefed, the case was in the hands of the politicians and the military. It allows the grounds for the conspiracy theories, because it looks like we are dealing with a different type of incident. Now that you have the overview of the highlights between March 2014 and October 2014, let us go back into the searches. And yes, if you have been following, I have said October 2014. Because the next set of searches didn't start in August as it was actually supposed to. It started in October. The reason why it was postponed, and this was again a bit of a digging mission to find out, the search was expected to begin in August, but they have had a bathymetric survey to conduct, and it was delayed until October because the only part of this survey was completed. What is bathymetry? It's the study of the beds of water bodies, including the oceans, rivers, streams, and lakes, oceans in our case. 
And if you look into the continuance of the searches online, you can find breakdowns of the vessels involved, the shipwrecks that they would find during this search. So, to summarize the two years of the searches that are about to take place, the search will resume in October of 2014. It would still be focusing on the seventh arc. It would last until well into the following year. By April 2015, the search had covered 60% of the designated area, and this would prompt Australia, Malaysia, and China to agree to expand the search area from 60,000 to 120,000 square kilometers, despite discovering some interesting artifacts such as 19th century shipwrecks, the search team found no evidence of the missing plane. At this point in our timeline, as the continued searches are taking place, one year anniversary since the disappearance approaches, and with it does the first provisional investigation report. This report mentions something that Malaysian and Australian authorities failed to mention or just didn't do it on purpose. According to the book, the recommended limit date that was set in December 2012 of the battery-powering flight data recorder black box transmitter beacon had expired, which would mean once they were still searching for the fingers and after the black boxes, you know, being after the black boxes within those 30 days, this would have halved their chances of success because the Australian ships wouldn't be looking for two fingers, black box, and then the flight data recorder, rather just one. But this is just mentioned in this report and never made public from what I have seen by the actual officials. During this time, as for the passenger list, the report that was published one year after would contain the link to the Ministry of Transport website, but that didn't even work. The full official list of passengers had never been made public. The only list that was available even two years after would still have the Italian and the Austrian among the passengers rather than the two Iranians that we spoke about in part one. The whole of Inmarsat data was never made public. The table that people would see on TV would have 28 columns, but the one that was actually available to the public only had nine. There was an issue with the cockpit data as well, according to the forensic experts that have listened to what was recorded on the ground, because as you remember, the cockpit voice recorder was never recovered. They have said that what they have heard, so the audio footage, was clearly cut and edited, or in other words, doctored. When evidence of valuable recorded information is claimed to be edited to remove the silent places where no dialogue took place, and I can clearly hear the edits, then in my professional opinion, I would much prefer that they give us the entire cockpit communication with the towers, and we will fast forward through the silent places. So from that, you can gather that they have edited apparently the silences for the family is not to waste time. However, then that kind of heavily makes you suspect like was everything edited or doctored in some way. In January 2015, the families were also told to switch on the TV and watch CNN, which genuinely the way that they communicated with these families is so abysmal. It's so appalling. It's so, so beyond me. Like imagine the state of people's hearts, minds, like the panic that you're going to go through when somebody just tells you like, hey, 
turn on CNN with a matter of urgency. You think something had happened. You think they had found a plane. No, that was not why they were told to switch on CNN on 29th of January 2015. It is to hear that the disappearance of this flight has now been classified as an accident. Without any new supporting evidence, they just had one thing in mind, and that was to close this investigation as soon as possible. Researches of the ocean beds will, however, take place until January of 2017, and this is when those will stop as well. The search of the entire 120,000 square kilometers underwater search area was completed by 17th of January 2017, after which the search for Flight 370 was suspended in line with the July 2016 agreement between Australia, Malaysia, and China. The question is why, and according to the FAQs and according to all of the other articles, it's based on the data, not the cost, that they had covered the whole of the 120,000 square kilometers, and that was the defined data with the limited you know, oceanographic facts that they have had, and then the Inmarsat data. The aircraft was not in that area, but they had confidence in the technology. The underwater search for missing Malaysia Airlines flight MH370 has been suspended, officials have announced. Malaysia, Australia and China, the countries coordinating the search efforts, said the decision had not been taken lightly. But they confirmed debris from the plane hadn't been located within the designated 120,000 square kilometre area in the southern Indian Ocean. The Boeing 777 disappeared with 239 people on board en route from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing in March 2014. Seven pieces of debris have so far been identified as either definitely or highly likely to be from the missing jet. Families of the victims have called the suspension irresponsible and are urging investigators to reconsider. According to the FAQ, and this is going to be the narrative from this point on, 2017, we are in 2023 now, to reopen this case, to start these searches again, Australian Transport Bureau is going to need credible new evidence. The families were left shocked and saddened by these news, and for them, like, calling it a day meant stopping rather than suspending, because, you know, once you hear, like, hey, we need to know about credible new evidence that also pinpoints to a specific location of a plane, it doesn't really sound like they're A, going to do much, and B, like, when is, when is that going to happen? When will we have the data to resume the searches? It sounded like the searches were stopped rather than being suspended. And this is the sentiment that the families would have to this date, but also the current state of affairs in 2023, as you will realize going further into this story, hasn't changed much. Some new evidence has to pop up for the searches to resume. In terms of the official searches, there will be a new name that will come to light in 2018 that will take over the ocean searches. So, in the year following the suspension of the original search, there was a push for a new one. And with the help of the new reverse drift models, private search and salvage firm Ocean Infinity made a proposal to the Malaysian government. They offered to search an area just north of the original search area, with the understanding that if the plane was not found, Malaysia would not be charged. 
So in January 2018, Malaysia accepted a no-find, no-fee arrangement, and Ocean Infinity's seabed constructor was soon on its way to the southern Indian Ocean. My personal opinion, based on a bit of digging, a bit of looking into this company, they had been founded in 2017, they are owned partially by the US, partially by the UK, and they have claimed that they will either find the aircraft within 90 days or foot the bill themselves. So, to me, it again seemed like somebody with something to prove. And probably with them it was also because of the technology that they are using, because they're claiming to be a robotics company and that they're using robots in order to get the information from the ocean and the seabed. The second search that is going to be launched in January 2018 by them will end without success after six months. To the bare eye, it again looks like this is the same area, just a bit up to the north. However, what Ocean Infinity will say is that they have also been using drift modeling to know where exactly to search. So the search efforts by them will be based on Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization. The suggested plan for further search efforts was based on the drift modeling that was conducted by this company in 2016 and that was later published. This organization aimed to examine the probable courses taken by floating debris that originated near the 7th Arc, and then compare them with debris that was found along the eastern coast of Africa and nearby Indian Ocean Islands. The focus would be on the initial significant item that was retrieved, the right-wing flaperon, that would be discovered on Reunion Island in July of 2015. And here I might be dumb as hell. I might not understand a single thing about this search and why Ocean Infinity is still searching near Seven Park, right? But what will never make sense to me is why just focus in this area in 2014, 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018, when you find nothing and when you know the currents will take the debris elsewhere. And then when on top of that the debris does pop up elsewhere. What it brings into the question is was this debris that will be found ever fully trusted by the professionals that were in charge of the searches? So here I have to loop you in on the debris that had been found, not by official searches, which is why we waited all the way up until now. We go back in time to July of 2015. So while the search was ongoing, at that point still by Australia, by the Transport Bureau, a piece of an airplane was found by local beach cleaners on the French island of Reunion, located east of Madagascar. The item will be identified by French authorities as a Boeing 777 flapperon. What flapperon is, it's a movable part of the wing and it's used to increase drag for takeoff and landing and to bank the aircraft. A major discovery on the tiny French island of La Réunion, which is about 600 miles off Madagascar and in the Indian Ocean, that debris that was found on the beach in Reunion, as we say in English, now definitely appears to be from a Boeing 777 and there is only one missing anywhere in the world, and that, of course, is Malaysia Flight 370. So the question then becomes, how is it possible that debris could have drifted so far from the initial search zone where they are still focusing their attention way off the coast of Australia? Well, the Australian Command Center that's been leading the search for MH370 says it's not surprised 
debris has washed up so far from that search zone and it is consistent with ocean modeling which suggests the final resting place of the plane is likely in the southern Indian Ocean. Here's why. Take a look at the ocean currents in the Indian Ocean. They move in a counterclockwise pattern like a washing machine, if you will, and they say it's entirely possible that a plane or debris would start drifting from the southwest corner of Australia and all the way around the Indian Ocean basin until it's finally dropped near Madagascar, or in this case, near Reunion Island. At this hour, French police, the gendarmes, are looking for more debris on not only Reunion Island, but the neighboring islands as well. And they're going to undertake the very difficult task of trying to now backtrack exactly where this debris might have originated. In other words, looking at ocean currents and patterns over the last 16 and a half months to see if they can get some sense of where this particular piece of debris might have originated. That's a huge challenge. They will also be looking at the sea life, the barnacles that are on that wing flap to get a sense of where is that sea life originating. They might get a sense from marine biologists if that particular sea life is unique to a particular place in the Indian Ocean. Lastly, just a word about the flapper. It's actually a flapper on on this 777 wing. It's used to help control the plane at slow speeds and also control the roll of the plane. And that is why it is a distinct piece that the 777 engineers know very well. That is why Boeing engineers and, and investigators say they're very confident that this is, in fact, a piece from one of their aircraft. The challenge now is to find the rest of the plane and the 239 people on board. 27 pieces of debris are about to just start showing up on the shores of the islands and the beaches of the countries west of the surge area. They will mostly be found by local people who will then call those pieces in and then they will be sent for investigations. To break this down, none of the pieces of debris would be found by official searches. Again, correct me if I'm wrong here, from my understanding, it would have all been local men, and then one man in particular that we are going to speak about. Then Florence would point out how many times the buzzwords like likely, most probably, were thrown about, especially in the first couple of months as this debris kept popping up. The final report will state that three pieces of debris were confirmed to be from this plane and 27 pieces would be listed, ranging from confirmed to almost certain to highly likely, likely to be from the plane and then non-identifiable. I will only be talking about the three confirmed pieces, what basis they were confirmed on, like once they were actually sent to either manufacturer or the lab, and then what they can tell us about how this plane might have landed or crashed. Each part of the debris will be sent either to the lab or to the manufacturer or sometimes both. And the intention is to confirm that the manufacturer indeed did produce this part of the plane, that it does belong to Boeing 777, to confirm that the paint matches up, like how they would have painted this part of the plane, and also then the serial numbers that they would have. Regarding the flapper that they had just found, the way that they will connect it to the aircraft that we are looking for would be by these barnacles that had grown on it, these crustaceans. The barnacles determined two things from them. One is that this flapron was definitely found in the waters near Reunion Island, 
but then also that it drifted in waters, showing that this would match it drifting from the seven arc, from where the searches would be taking place, all the way up to the east-northeast of Reunion Island. The nameplate that would have immediately confirmed who manufactured this part of the wing was missing, however, and this would have immediately connected this flaperon to Boeing 777. However, what else they're going to look into would be identification numbers of the internal parts of the flaperon, and then compare those against the manufacturing records. I'm going to play the video here just so you can visually picture where what is when it comes to a flaperon, just so this makes a lot more sense. Well, Kenny, uh, we've heard a lot about flaperons in the last 24 hours. What are they, what do they do, and where are they on this aircraft? Yeah, the flaperon, you can see installed on this aircraft between these two larger pieces. Those, those are the flaps themselves. The flaperon's that part that sits right that in the middle. That small six and a half foot piece right that, there. That's exactly right. And the flaperon combines the functions of actual of two components on the aircraft, one being an aileron, which controls the roll of the airplane, and the other being the flaps, which control lift at slower speeds. And we've actually brought one down here to, to get a closer look. This is a replica of what you would see on a Boeing 777. And as you see this debris that's washed up just off the coast of uh, Reunion Island, or on Reunion Island. What's this here that we're looking at on this uh, on this part here? Yeah, this, this actually came from a 777, and this plate right here is a data point. It's a identification that comes on any component and tells you part number and serial number for that component and can help tie it to an aircraft. And yet on the debris that we saw, that plate's not there. So what does that mean? Yeah, we actually have pictures of the component they found in Reunion, and you can see the data plate is missing. It's held onto the, the component by an adhesive, by glue. So that could have just ripped right off? Yeah, or, or set over time in, in something like water, like an ocean, removed itself from the component. And yet, though, we did see serial numbers. Isn't that right, Michael? We saw some serial numbers on this flaperon. What will that help with? Yeah, this flaperon is, is a whole assembly, and it's a combination of several panels. So inside this component, it's possible there's a lot of serial numbers, part numbers even, for individual pieces. Or it could refer to all, you know, a larger assembly such as the flap rod. Let's move to the other side here, guys, because Michael was pointing out something uh, just before we started talking on television here about how there's no mistaking this came from a Boeing 777. You're confident that the debris that we're seeing in Madagascar, or just off the coast of Reunion Island, I should say, is from a Boeing 777, but why that confidence? If you compare this component to the pictures that have come off Reunion, the attached points of the 777 flap rod are two linkages, one on the far side where we were, and one here um, that's tied to a big linkage, a big hole. These between, mounting is points. That here. mounting point yeah. on the component itself. That's very distinct to a 777. I am confident what they saw in Reunion came from a 777. We have the barnacles confirming this is the right flaperon. The second piece of information that will confirm this for the investigators would be that one of the three numbers that would be found on this part of the wing would part match up with the plane's serial number, 9MMRO. So most articles online will state that one out of the three of the serial numbers inside the flaperon would match up. Florence's book would state one out of 12. So let me break that down. Florence offers us more info on the serial number, saying that the analysis revealed three numbers 
inside of the flaperon. However, the expert that she had consulted clearly indicated to the families at the beginning of the investigation that 12 component numbers identified inside of the flaperon had been sent to the subcontractor. She would say once this flaperon was sent to Spain for the manufacturer to examine it, the technician interviewed was able to confirm that one of the 12 numbers found on the inside of the flaperon was a definite match with the serial number of the flaperon on this Boeing. However, what remains then to be answered is what about 11 others? This information I had only found in the book, that there were 12 serial numbers instead of three. Every other source online would state that one out of the three serial numbers was able to be matched up. Whether you believe it's one out of three or one out of 12, yes, does it make a significant difference? Definitely. Definitely makes you suspect that a lot of evidence here had been ignored, a lot of interviews here haven't been made by the officials. However, then also, is that enough for you? The barnacles, no missing plate that would have definitely confirmed this flaperon belonged to Boeing 777. And then finally, the partial match with the plane's serial number. Then we have the two flaps that were confirmed to belong to this aircraft. The only part of the plane on the left side that is to be confirmed would be the left outbound flap, so another part of the wing. This part of the wing is served to keep the takeoff and landing speeds as low as possible. And the way that it was identified it belonged to this plane was, again, by sending it to a manufacturer, who confirmed a part identifier on this flap matched the flap manufacturer supplied records. And this indicated a unique work order number, and that the referred part was actually incorporated into the outboard flap ship set, line 404 that corresponded to Boeing 777 aircraft that was under this registration. So apparently the manufacturer confirmed like it belonged onto this aircraft. Lastly, the last item that had been confirmed, we go back to the right side of the plane and the right wing flap. The right outboard flap that was found on the shores of Zanzibar had the identification number and the date stamp. And those proved for the investigators that this flap belonged to MH370. The numbers that were located on this part of the flap related to the same serial number outboard flap that was shipped to Boeing for aircraft 9MMRO. What Florence would point out in the book is that the flaperon was actually sent for repair in 2013. And the first couple of articles, in particular by the New York Times, speaking about the examination, had written that neither Boeing nor the American National Transportation Safety Board, which had seen the flaperon, were convinced that it belonged to this flight. The experts were always requesting further analysis, and the doubts were based on the modification to the flaperon part that did not appear to match what they would expect from airline maintenance records. Even the former director of the BEA, Jean-Paul Trudeck, like that was, I think, in charge of the first part of the investigation, said, well, maintenance logs are sometimes wrong, because they would here state that in order to verify the existence and the trace of a repair that took place on the left side of the part, a piece of rail and joint are pulled off. 
However, you don't hear about it. You don't hear about how the repair might have actually changed this flaperon, or how maybe the fact that it was sent for repair in 2013 means that there is something particular about this part of the flaperon that would help them actually trace it to this particular aircraft. You don't hear about that in any of the reports that at least I have seen online. Without the ID plate, the authenticity of the flaperon should also have been called into doubt. And then paintwork couldn't be confirmed because the paint here on this flaperon was the same as on dozens, if not hundreds, of planes of the same generation. However, this would never stop the Malaysian Minister of Transport from declaring on CNN that the precise color of the paint on the flaperon is exactly the same as that used on MH370. So with the two most reliable ways to identify the flaperon, the ID plate and the match with a maintenance log, the government would confirm with certainty that the flaperon found on Reunion Island on 29th of July 2015 corresponds to the plane used for flight MH370. What does this mean in terms of the conclusions that have been made based off of the confirmed parts and all of the other parts of the debris, but especially these three ones that we have spoken about? According to the 2018 report, damage examination on the recovered part of the right outboard flap, together with the damage found on the right flaperon, shows us that the right outboard flap was most likely in the retracted position, and the right flaperon was probably at or close to the neutral position at the time they would separate from the wing. And the recovery of the cabin interior debris suggests the aircraft was likely to have broken up. However, they never had sufficient information to determine if the aircraft was broken up in the air or during the impact with the ocean. No other information about in-flight emergencies, aircraft configuration or impact can be deducted from the nature and the damage of the debris. Without the black boxes and the flight data recorders, they were also unable to identify any plausible aircraft or systems failure mode that would lead to the systems deactivations we have spoken about with transponder and ACARs being switched off, diversion from the filed flight plan route, and the flight path taken by the aircraft. The possibility of intervention by a third party also cannot be excluded. So, in conclusion, we know nothing. So far, we know the plane, according to the official report, was manually flown, that it had likely broken up in the air, and that's it. After nine years, that is what we know. With the debris found, with the years and years of the search of the ocean beds, that's what we know. I am now going to go into the report on the newfound debris from 2022, okay? Everything I'm about to say right now about that chunk of information, take it with a grain of salt. I think you will realize why, but I will tell you at the, you know, at the end of that report. So, based on the articles in 2022, on what the other unconfirmed debris could mean, we have a different, more morbid picture. This report came out about the Boeing 777 component, also known as a Tranian door, that was found in the possession of a fisherman in Madagascar. It became the first physical evidence suggesting that one of the pilots purposely tried to destroy and sink 
the Malaysian Airlines jet with 249 passengers and crew on board. It became the first physical piece of evidence suggesting one of the pilots purposely tried to destroy and sink the Malaysian Airlines jet with 239 passengers and crew on board. This part of the debris is yet to be officially confirmed to be part of the plane. However, two people who participated in the investigation, Blaine Gibson and Richard Godfrey, looked into the possibility now of what finding the Chanyan door can mean. And according to them, what this had suggested, and the damage that had been done to Chanyan door had suggested, is that the landing gear was opened before the plane hit the water. And that would support theories that the crash was deliberate. There have been many theories and questions raised regarding the mystery of the missing flight, and eight years later, the story continues to unfold. A new evidence now suggests that the aircraft could have been deliberately downed by its pilot in an act of mass murder-suicide. According to a report, the discovery of the flight debris signals that the landing gear was down when it hit the ocean. The report by Richard Godfrey, who is a British engineer, and Blaine Gibson, an American MH370 hunter, they've said that the plane was deliberately crashed. They've concluded that the flight was in high speed and divided to ensure that the aircraft breaks into pieces. The airport for... Pardon me. The report further claims here that the crash was anything, anything but a soft landing here. The debris which is being examined was found at the home of the Madagascan fisherman who found it on a beach back in 2017. They kept the landing gear door at the home for five years and were not aware of the significance of the same. Now, the fisherman's wife also used the door as washing board across Madagascar as a total of 19 chunks of debris have been found. The theory proposed by Godfrey and Gibson here is based on the four quasi-parallel gashes on the door here, which they believed were caused by one of the plane's two engines disintegrating on impact. Pilots don't usually lower the undercarriage if they have to perform an emergency landing on water, as the extended landing gear will dig into the water and disrupt contact with the surface, and this would increase the chances of the breakup of the aircraft. So, according to Blaine and to Richard, this was a high-speed dive, and it was meant to break up the airplane into as many fragments as possible. I had to mention this because the videos that I would see in online, the news articles, would suddenly just make complete conclusions based off of this. Nobody had tested this debris. It's not confirmed to even be from this plane. However, people would be calling it anything but a soft landing. They would make conclusions on how this plane had landed based off of the unconfirmed piece of debris. And it pisses me off because you can't say things as if they were a fact when this piece of debris in the scope of things was found yesterday, 2022, like literally around the corner, not confirmed, it was even from the right plane, not examined by anybody. Like, families are listening into each and every clue. They're turning on the news, they see MH370, they listen in on it, and then they hear something morbid like this, and they're like, well, is it true or is it not? Will anybody investigate? Will anybody ever find out what had happened to my loved ones? It's just, that's the part where I'm like, just think, just somebody before even publishing these types of articles, I know you're in for a good story, but just think. Was it confirmed by anybody legitimate? No. Should we maybe not publish it until it is? Should we maybe not make conclusions, make like graphs and stuff about the most morbid account of events? Oh, it makes my blood boil. It makes my blood motherfucking boil. So, we're about to talk about one of the individuals 
that was the person who had exposed this story in 2022 and who had found a lot of pieces of debris, Blaine Gibson. But before that, let me look into another side cook that I had done. I had spent hours looking into oceanography, okay? It's, it's something that I'm trying to explain to myself, like how these currents might have moved this debris. So the discovery of the wreckage provided new opportunities for investigation in two areas. One would be structural analysis to determine how the plane crashed into the water, and reverse drift analysis to determine where the debris originated from based on ocean currents. The main points on the currents would be that they would have moved the debris in anti-clockwise direction. In terms of the timing, these results would be consistent with the finding of the debris in the Western Indian Ocean and originating from the Seventh Arc, but the travel times differ by several months depending on the origin of the debris along the Seventh Arc. And finally, following the currents, the most probable locations to discover additional washed-up debris would be most of the places that we have already heard the debris had been found in. Tanzania, Mozambique, as well as the islands of Madagascar, Reunion, Mauritius, and the Comoros. This gives justification to both the Australian searches and then the Ocean Infinity searches, and how they have been done correctly, because the debris would have originated near the Seventh Arc and then would have traveled west. And these areas will probably yield more debris in the future, so that's why the Trunnion door in 2022 makes complete sense. And then on the back of that, any further searches should be based on these currents. So with these searches, with the oceanographic data to support it, we have reinforcement of the Indian Ocean narrative, that they were right to search this area to begin with. But why were the officials not the ones to find something substantial, and who was the man who did? Enter a man called Blaine. Blaine Gibson, who is a lawyer by profession, would describe himself as an adventurer. He has traveled to different corners of the world in order to investigate incidents that are of the interest to him. So, before focusing on the disappearance of MH370, he would go to Siberia, where he would look at the Tunguska meteor, then he spent a few years in Russia, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. He sold his house in order to go around the world, and from what I understand, his parents are both gone. I don't know the circumstances of that. However, he got the inheritance, and this is what he was spending. So he was just living cheaply, living frugally, and traveling the world, looking into different things, investigating different, I would say, either famous mysteries or very current mysteries. Like, his MH370 obsession would kind of be fully fueled and would occupy most of his focus in the recent years. When the plane disappeared, he was on the flight back to the US, and he was tasked with selling the family home in California, so while he was distracting himself from signing all of the documents, selling the home, doing inspections, going through the family memories, he would set glued to the TV. After sorting the family stuff out, he headed towards Laos. He then committed to helping his friend set up a karaoke bar. And at this point, he was immersing himself, but like to a degree where I think a lot of MHs have done in discussion groups, like online, on Facebook, finding the groups online where you can post your own theories. 
However, then first anniversary of the disappearance comes around, and Blaine attends the public service in Kuala Lumpur that marked the first anniversary of the plane disappearance, and he was moved by the speech that was given by Grace Nathan, who continues to speak on behalf of the families of missing passengers, because her loved one was on the plane. This inspired him to combine two of his passions, his love for travel and then solving mysteries, with a purpose. He became friends with some of the family members and started searching for the debris. He started traveling to Myanmar, to Cambodia, to explore the possibility that the plane had flown north. He would do this on the back of the reports. So, Cambodia was mentioned in part one because it was shown on that recording when it comes to the ground controls, and that maybe the flight was taking the projected path that the plane had been seen flying over Cambodia. Then, the other reports were followed by interviewing locals in the Maldives that had claimed at the time, circa 2015, that they had seen jet plane the morning that MH370 disappeared, despite satellite data contradicting their accounts. I didn't know where to put the bit on Maldives, like Florence dedicates a whole chapter to it, so I will just put it here and quickly summarize that, because I think that's another theory that had been debunked since. So, when the plane disappeared, several islanders on the southern Maldives island of Kuada Huadhu claimed that they had seen a big plane fly over early in the morning at a low altitude. They had heard a loud noise around 6 a.m. and just before 7 a.m. local time in the Maldives, and this would have been 9 or 10 a.m. local time in Beijing. This would mean that the aircraft wouldn't have been MH370 because of the timing, mostly, because at 6.15 a.m. it was already 9.15 a.m. in Beijing and Kuala Lumpur. The Maldives lead kept popping up, and I would still see the articles from 2015 about it, where even a spokesman for the president of the Maldives told a major press agency that debris that may have been part of the MH370 plane found in the Maldives had been sent to the Malaysian authorities. The debris was said not to have been from MH370. The leads around Maldives would die down in 2015, but just like with the other bits of news, any that didn't fully support Southern Indian Ocean and Inmarsat data were ignored. Ignored by most people, that is, but Blaine. Blaine did go to the Maldives, he did go to Cambodia, he checked those places out, there was no debris, so he moved on. In July of 2015, a six-foot flaperon was found on Reunion Island, and this narrowed down Blaine's search area. Since the discovery of the flaperon, he embarked on a search for more debris along the coast of several Southeast African countries. And to his surprise, and the surprise of many people online, finding wreckage turned out to be relatively easy. Suddenly, you know, like... The search in Australia had been taking place between 2014 and 2015, suddenly this debris just kept popping up. Depending on the source that you read online, Blaine is either attributed to finding half of the plane parts or one-third of them. However, this is a man with no aviation experience, no professional experience in this area at all. What Blaine would say in the interviews is that he knows what the pieces of a plane look like, that he has probably held in his hands more pieces of Malaysia 370 since it crashed than anybody alive. 
His methods are simple. He looks on beaches, he puts the word out with locals, he checks the shacks, because large pieces of metal are valuable construction materials. And it's slow and labor-intensive process that he will get a ton of hate for online. The most hate that I would see that was attributed to Blaine, I could track to him being called a Russian spy. And this is based off of him founding a company with two Russians, living in Russia and speaking Russian. And Jeff Wise, who you might have seen in the documentary, I don't want to give Jeff Wise any fucking airtime, but he would mention how unusual it would be for Americans, because of their history with Russia, to just start learning Russian, and how this is extremely suspicious. Blaine would be accused of having reported planted debris, even planting the debris himself, because it is extremely suspicious how within months all of these pieces of debris started popping up on these beaches. However, the families love him, because to them it looks like someone is doing something, and actually yielding results, which is what they always wanted. Blaine would say, we have to solve the mystery. It's not just for the families, it's for the flying public, who need to be sure what happened never happens again. Blaine would say, we have to solve the mystery. It's not just for the families, it is for the public, who need to be sure what happened never happens again. We need to know that when we get on a plane, it may crash, things happen, but it's not going to just disappear. The writer of the book does mention Blaine, and she had looked into him, and from what I have gauged, I don't think she treats it with a Jeff Wise angle. I don't think she gives any more shit about Jeff Wise than I do, to be fair. I don't think she thinks he's a Russian spy as much. She had looked into, like, he had a possibility, and obviously, like, the gossip that was out there. I think it's more of, like, her trying to reach out to Blaine and then figuring out that he supposedly has a PA that is very much, like, incognito online. She's kind of wondering why would an adventurer have a secretary? Like, what is that all about? Who is this woman? Like, is there anything really there? However, she never managed to actually speak to Blaine, and the angle there is that it's more about the PA and Blaine Gibson possibly being in the pocket of the Malaysians, because they would attend different press conferences, they would attend the different events organized by the Malaysian government, and according to her, the PA of Blaine Gibson would be given gifts, and Blaine would be highly respected in those circles by the Malaysian government. So, what would have been the motive here, if Blaine was to be doing something shady, if he was to be planting debris, if he was to be like, inserting himself into this investigation, if nothing else? I could not find that he was actually connected to anything sinister himself. Just like with the co-pilots, nothing could be found on this man to put any sort of blame on him. Like, what you need to figure out, he is not connected, and would be, had this been obviously looked into, investigated, which I think he got enough slander online that some people probably would have dug up something much more incriminating than a man owns a company with Russians. Like, he's not connected to taking a plane down. He's connecting to finding parts of the plane. It's two very different things. I think, like, had there been a connection, 
or Blaine, I don't know, being involved in some Russian separatist plot, that would have been dug up. I have a feeling somebody would be like, oh, this is the alarming part, like, they would have been in jail up until now, but that's not the case. He is trying to dig up the parts. In terms of motive, would he have suddenly had the motive to get involved in locating the debris, and would the Malaysian government have the motive to want Blaine to keep finding this debris is more where I am leaning towards. At the time when the debris started popping up, there were reward mentions in different articles for people who find debris, but also, as we'll speak about in a minute for Ocean Infinity, there was a prospect of a monetary reward that was never too far away. So in 2018, when Ocean Infinity got back onto the searches, they were to be paid, however, there were conditions. They were to be paid 20 million for fitting into the search area that was already dedicated to them, then 30 million if the search was to be expanded, 50 million if they were to expand it even further, and 70 mil if the plane or recorders are found beyond the identified area. So, it could have been a potential prospect of a reward for somebody connected with the search, even though this was, like, Ocean Infinity-related. There was never, like, an actual reward indicated for somebody finding debris of the plane. It could have also been recognition. We have to think about somebody inserting themselves in such an investigation, you know, the biggest in the aviation history, for their name to be associated with finding this plane and the passengers. And from the sounds of it, he was recognized by the families and the Malaysian authorities for his effort. This is very much a sideline here, right? But when I was looking into, like, how much money they were to give Ocean Infinity, if they were to find anything, and just in general, like, how much money was spent on this search to begin with, in total it would be 200 mil, I think, if I have read that correctly, for the searches for the plane. It got me thinking, right? This amount, like 200 mil, for the top billionaires of the world, that's like petty change. I know that's, that sounds insane, but it is. It is. And there are some people, like think Bezos, think Elon Musk, mostly think Elon Musk, that have that kind of vibe around them, of like, no, I want to be recognized, I want to be behind this, I want to be controversial, and I want to be on top of this, how come that neither of those individuals, or like, I don't know how many names you can think of, has taken any interest in this? Like, why not just put your money into either, yes, following the Inmarsat data, or possibly even putting the money, directing it towards the South China Sea? Just like, eliminate that area for us, for the peace of mind. Because if the money doesn't really matter, to you, or if you're already putting it, investing it into other things, I just don't know. Like, this is a call, yes, to billionaires to, like, invest into this search and just try to, like, yeah, put money into it. For the families, I know they will do it for their own personal reasons, but again, how come that nobody had just made themselves publicly known and really was an MHist and, like, conspiracy theorist and wanted to put their money into this? I don't know. I don't know. I'm just saying, like, yeah, Elon Musk, now when Twitter had failed, put it into something, like, figure this out, my man, like, you have the money, like, people have, some people have the money, that's the thing, some people have the money to resolve this after nine years. 
When it comes to Blaine, let's wrap this thing up. My personal take, I don't think that he deserves the hate that he had gotten online, based off of the speculation. Pure speculation, right? Wasn't connected to anything, any sort of, like, planting of the evidence, terrorist kind of vibes, separatist vibe. no. The only thing I dislike about Blaine are claims that something is a fact when it's not confirmed, referring to the debris from 2022. That's the problem that I have. That's the part which I strongly dislike, especially for somebody who is coming at it, hopefully with the best interest at heart for those families. That's the thing where I'm like, mate, you can't be helping the families and then also offering speculations. Like, I see what you're trying to do. I know that you're trying to, you know, actually do more than government and the officials, but this just rubs me the wrong way. That's the opinion that I have on Blaine personally. You let me know what your opinion is in the comments. We have now spoken of the official searches, the unofficial ones where the debris has been found, the loose connections of that debris to the plane where 24 out of 27 of the parts of the debris mentioned in the 2018 report are not confirmed to be from the Boeing 777. So let us dive into the theories that people might have if they believe that the plane did indeed take the U-turn, what reason did it do so for, and believe that this debris does confirm a sinister decision was made by people on that flight. So, putting into the point of view of the theorists once the debris had been found. We spoke about the pilot here in part one, that he had practiced landing via the simulator, that Zachary knew that anyone who did not put on an oxygen mask will soon be dead, and with his co-pilot out of the picture, he is left to carry out this plan alone. That the whole purpose of the U-turn and the plane actually ending in the South Indian Ocean was intentional, that Zachary didn't want the plane to be found. He never wanted his missions, his sinister intentions to be discovered. We spoke about the flaws of the pilot theory in part one and how we are truly assuming that this man committed a perfect act of mass murder-suicide that had never been done before. The second avenue here would be that the plane was possibly aimed at a military strip and then shot by the U.S. government. Enter Diego Garcia. Wake up, people! There's a cover-up! I'm telling you, Diego Garcia, there's a cover-up! This theory states that MH370 was hijacked and that he would have finished his race on an island. Diego Garcia, located in the Indian Ocean west of Malaysia, 2,000 kilometers from the Maldives. It's this sand and coral atoll unknown to the general public, but not to the military. It is the most important air base in the world outside the United States, military base. There are B-52s, there are B-2s, there's Diego Garcia. It's an aircraft carrier. It's defended like 10 aircraft carriers. The planes we're hearing about right now, who are going to Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, all go from there. Today, Diego Garcia houses the most secret American military bases. This base specializes in espionage on satellites and on the espionage of submarine cables through which everything that is the internet passes. So obviously, if the Boeing had been hijacked to Diego Garcia Island, the American response would not have been long in coming. 
Given the surveillance of this island by the Americans, it is clear that they did not let them approach. They don't know the intentions of an unresponsive plane and who would head for Diego Garcia. At that point, they would have no choice but to shoot him down. Diego Garcia is this military base, and the access to it is not allowed to the commercial flights. It's only allowed to those with the connections either to the military facility or the territory's administration. The supposition here is that the pilot or hijackers, passengers on a plane, or somebody remotely made that U-turn in order to head directly at Diego Garcia for different types of reasons. So there is a scenario where the plane is headed towards the US base, is given multiple warnings by the American forces, it doesn't respond or change course, and they shoot it down. This wouldn't be unprecedented. There is disturbing amount of examples of planes being shot down by the military. The question here is more why? Is the context that the pilot is in an attempt of a mass murder-suicide headed towards Diego Garcia, and this is why they have taken a new turn and had deliberately switched off the transponder and the air cars? Is it that the hijackers have wanted to do it, that this is kind of, again, a murder-suicide mission, but for different motives? Or is it, and why Diego Garcia theory was prevalent at the time, sort of fake reports of different conversations that possibly passengers have been held hostage, so that the plane hadn't been shot down, rather that it had actually landed or been taken hostage by the military. This narrative was pushed by Jeff Wise, as seen in the documentary, and also by the fake text message conversation from the only adult American on board. We spoke a bit about Philip Wood in part one and about this conversation that by most accounts is fake, but there have been some exchanges of the passengers being held hostage by the unknown military personnel, and that the flight had actually been hijacked. Had the passenger flight approached Diego Garcia, however, their access would have been prohibited. But this space is also equipped with a very long range over-the-horizon radars. Yet, Diego Garcia saw nothing. They didn't hear anything, they didn't say anything, they just didn't spot this plane whatsoever. And this didn't just apply to Diego Garcia, it applied to Okinawa, for example, in Japan, other military bases in the regions that would have had these radars. So the speculation here is people could have still landed or taken, been taken hostage, or the plane would have still been shot down, and they just wouldn't have to disclose any information, or rather would have probably deleted, covered up, for it. My question here for Florence would again depend on, I think, the lack of understanding that I have of radars versus satellites. Or maybe I understand it well and just misinformation is being spread online. But what I don't understand, right, is at this point the play is already off the radar. The transponder, the A-cards have been switched off. So are these satellites? that should have spotted the plane? What kind of radars are we talking about? Because this is kind of mentioned all throughout, but from my understanding, all of the data based off of the U-turn and the Southern Indian Ocean is based off of the satellites in that area, not the radars, because the plane is off the radar. Nobody should technically be able to see it. However, there is something else that supports possibly Diego Garcia. 
She had actually found out that on 8th of March, a notice came up on the official Facebook page of the Diego Garcia passenger terminal, and it said, no scheduled flights in and out of Diego Garcia for the following 72 hours. According to Florence, apart from during extreme weather conditions, which were not happening at the time, such a ban would have only been implemented in a case of an intense military activity involving constant takeoffs and landings. And some people question whether the fact that the US Department of Defense officially launched its new laser weapon systems on the 6th of March 2014 was in some way related to this closure. Another explanation would be that the US military were contributing to a search and rescue operation of MH370, and this is why they would have needed all hands on deck in order to keep this covered up. The flaws in the Diego Garcia theory, these are just like on top of my head. The US authorities denied they had any involvement, right? If you trust the oceanographers and the data that the debris washed up on the Reunion Island, then the plane would have crashed closer to Australia than Diego Garcia. Then the debris pops up on the shores of African countries also if you trust the currents and how they had worked, if you trust any of the data, basically, the Diego Garcia theory doesn't make much sense. It makes sense in terms of, like, oh, the U-turn, where the plane could have gone, and it's kind of, like, in the proximities in the ocean, but never fully supported by data. The main flaw that I spot with any Diego Garcia theory is if the plane was shot down or if people are being held hostage, right, how many people would need to be in on this lie to never snitch for this many years? None of them? Like, people left the company, whistleblower, none of them? From government, soldiers, then people cleaning up the scene, 239 passengers. Like, if they had been held hostage or if the plane had been shot down, like, the cleanup, to ensure no debris, no passengers were ever found, I mean, that would be more than a couple of days' work, and it would also mean a lot, a lot of people keeping their mouth shut for over nine years. The next sub-scenario we have doesn't involve Diego Garcia. However, it still kind of is in this realm of Southern Indian Ocean. The supposition here is that the plane had been hijacked, and the data was manufactured in such a way to show that the plane is landing in Southern Indian Ocean, the plane is actually headed towards Russia. This is the one that you will see in documentary, if you have watched Netflix documentary, that was proposed by Jeff Wise. My, my favorite man. Listen, okay, let me tell you why. I do not put much respect. Let's just put it in the most politically correct way to Jeff Wise. Because the documentary made him look bad. I don't know this man personally. And, you know, obviously, the way that they cut out these documentaries can make somebody look different than they might be in person. The documentary, however, made this man look like he will hear a theory and he will consider it to be a truth. And, like, his opinion will change as and when the wind blows. And that's the part I'm like, I hope this is not the true Jeff Weiss. But let us go into his theory and the one that he had proposed, because a lot of people online do believe that this is something that might have happened, and it goes with how lax the security was, all of the fake passports and stuff that, you know, the passenger information just has always been a bit suspicious, and the security on at the Kuala Lumpur airport was always a bit relaxed. Like, 
what had happened with the cargo on the board, it could have brought on anything, what had happened with the passengers, do we still have the actual full story of all of the passengers on board? So, the hijacking theory is that there were three Russians on the plane. First correction here, based off of the passenger list, that I'm also sure Jeff Weiss has the access to, because it's online, we all have the access to it. There was one Russian and two Ukrainians, according to the passenger list. So, already, already flaws in this one, already flaws. However, apparently this one Russian and two Ukrainians are in on it, they are on board the plane, and one of them is seated near the unlocked carpet hatch that leads to the electronic bay, that leads to ACAR's system. The hijacking operation would then start around 1.15 a.m. The passenger that was near the hatch would access the electronics bay during the disturbance in the first-class cabin that would be distracting the flight attendants. And then, at around 1.20 a.m., the passenger would take control of the plane. They would disable all electronics and cause the aircraft to disappear from the radar. These passengers would then change the plane's direction to the northeast and would manipulate the Inmarsat data to indicate that the plane had actually traveled south. This opens up gates to another theory, which is remote hijacking. Like, what if maybe something like this, yes, had happened, where data had been manipulated? However, if it happened remotely? And again, what could that mean? Could it even be possible is the most appropriate question here. The possibility of a cyber attack was always on the books, and according to Florence, in 2006, Boeing actually patented the technology that would enable remote hijacking. However, it was unknown if any planes had been equipped with this technology, and if they would know how to use it. Would Boeing know? Would the airline know? Would the government know? And above everything, to what end was this technology available? And to whom? There's no guide online on how to hack a plane. However, something here that I kept thinking of, right? Autopilot or manually flying this plane? If the plane had been remotely hijacked, I suppose that would mean the plane was on autopilot? Again, correct me if I'm wrong here, right? Or yes, the controls had been taken over from the pilots, but the easiest way to do that is wait for the pilots to take off, put the plane in autopilot, and then take over. I don't know, never hijacked a plane before, I know, random. However, the final report from 2018 states that the plane had actually been manually flown. How did they know that? And if the plane was under control of somebody else, would we be able to know that the same way that we knew that the plane had been manually flown? Which was the deduction that was made in 2018 report, if you get what I mean. Like, how did they know, with the technology that they already had, that the plane wasn't on autopilot, rather it was manually flown, and then wouldn't we know, based off of that technology, if any sort of hijacking had taken place? I don't know. Let me know where my flaws lie with this theory. I just think that's kind of one of the main things that would discard hijacking for me, because if we knew the plane was manually flown, then we would have known it was remotely accessed. No? Cool. Glad we had this talk. 
The aircraft maker also would tell investigators on this hijacking thing that Boeing has confirmed that it has not implemented the patenting system or any other technology to remotely pilot a commercial aircraft and is not aware of any Boeing commercial aircraft that has incorporated such technology. However, again, why does it exist? How do we know that it exists? Who knows that it exists? So all the questions that just aren't answers, and this is why all of these conspiracy theories on remote hijacking are rampant, just everywhere online. So when thinking what Southern Indian Ocean theory might make most sense, you have to wonder what was the purpose. Was the aim just to prevent it from reaching Beijing? Was the goal actually to make the plane disappear? And if the point was to ensure the flight would not land in Beijing, was it because of someone on board or something that was on board, like cargo? Different cargo theories open up the doors to possibly the passengers on board being more involved. I'm going to tell you about the one that I have read about online and then why it was debunked just yet again because it is the one that is frequently mentioned. So, 20 of the employees of the US technology company Freescale Semiconductor have been on board of this plane, 12 Malaysians and 8 Chinese. So, all employed by the same company. Now, semiconductors, if you don't know, because I didn't, I didn't know what the hell these things are, they are the essential component, like chips, in electronic devices. This company that they worked for, so 20 passengers, worked for a company that was bought out by two groups, both close to the American military. So, this was money, power, and strategic technology at the highest level. When the press was issued after the plane had disappeared, the spokesperson for the company said that the passengers on board were people with a lot of experience and technical background, and they were very important people. That is definitely a loss for the company. These were mostly engineers and other experts working to make the company's chip facilities in Tianjin, China, and Kuala Lumpur more efficient all of them in economy class. The theory spread online is that four of these passengers on board were co-owners of a patent of great strategic and technological importance that was due to be filed any day. And if anything was to have happened to four co-owners, each of whom would hold a 20% share, the full ownership of the patent would fall to the remaining co-owner, and that would be freelance semiconductor. The discussion forums online state that because of this patent, because of the importance of it, the plane would have to be spirited away to secure the American control of the patent that would be of the strategic importance for them. So, in one of the conspiracy theories, the US government would fear that this patent would fall into the hands of the Chinese, and as a result, the plane would be hijacked and taken to the US base on Diego Garcia. Then, in another sub-scenario, it was the Chinese who would take control of the flight in order to interrogate the free-scale staff to find the scope of the US surveillance. There was another one that the Iran put passengers of stolen passports on board in order to get the control of the free-scale know-how on this product. Who were these passengers? Did they have very confidential information? possible because the company was developing a revolutionary program. The KL-02, a 
computer microchip with incredible powers, as this Japanese science journalist claims. Aboard that plane, there were 20 computer programs, 12 from Malaysia, from this plant, Freescale. The KLO2 and 3 are so small, they would fit very comfortably inside one of the dimples of a golf ball. That's how tiny they are. That's a little brain, an electronic brain that control a huge machinery, a number of functions inside uh, a tiny, let's say, robot, a machine, uh, both for civilian purposes, but more importantly, for military purposes. So did anyone resent the lives of these 20 engineers who had boarded MH370? Researchers who would have developed this ultra-modern chip once on board a drone, it could be a powerful and destructive weapon. In one single paragraph, Florence debunks this theory, saying that employees don't own a patent to begin with, that the inventor's name wasn't even on the passenger's manifest for, you know, if they were to be hijacked, kidnapped, interrogated for whatever reason, and that there was nothing revolutionary about this patent for the US or the Chinese or whatever government to want their hands on it. These are some of the top theories supporting the direction of the plane as explained by Inmarsat data. All of them have some flaws to them. I would say in the comment section if you believe either or, or if you have any others that would support the official data, to outline them for me. So to like start to finish, like what happens from the boarding process or even before that, and then how does that theory continue beginning to end. Before we speak about the other theories, let us finalize the story of the official searches. The report that I had taken multiple screenshots from that was published by the safety investigation team, the final report on the crash, was released in 2018. It was underwhelming. It offered little new information and failed to establish the definitive cause for the accident. Ocean Infinity searches would also terminate in 2018, and they announced in March of 2022 that they plan to restart the search in 2023 or 4 that was subject to approval by the Malaysian government. The Malaysian government responded to this by saying that this would happen if new and credible information emerged about the possible location of the plane. This was where this case stood until new evidence was mentioned in March 2023. As you can notice from my tone of voice, I'm not super hyped about this because they never tell us what this evidence was. So there was a report, I think, in The Guardian, 2023, March, like really literally just about month, month and a half ago, where there were new pushes for other searches. And Ocean Infinity Chief Executive made a comment that at this stage they are unable to say when a new search will take place, as discussions are ongoing and there is still much work to be done. They're hoping to resume either later this year or in 2024. However, he also told the family members that he would approach the Malaysian government in the coming weeks with the new evidence although he never elaborated on what company had found. Over the past 12 months, we had made real progress, working with many people to enhance our knowledge of the events of 2014 and ultimately improve our chances of conducting a successful search. 
is what he had said. They're still offering the no-find-no-fee basis when it comes to those searches, and, as I mentioned, are planning to resume them either later this year or 2024. And I, for one, truly hope that this happens for the families and the whole world, really, but mostly for the families to find out what had happened with their loved ones. Just thinking about the speculations, the amount of theories they have heard online, then, yes, again, being interviewed for different books, different projects by different people who all have their own agenda, how exhausting that must be. Like, I cannot even imagine, I cannot even put myself mentally in a place of, of somebody going through anything remotely similar. But as long as we remain in the dark about what happened to this flight, we will never be fully able to prevent a similar tragedy. We have gone through dozens of things, while speaking of theories, showing us what can be improved on flights to reduce the chances of a similar investigation even having to take place. So, let us speak about those. Let us speak about what they had picked up on based off of this investigation and this search and the improvements that had been made. Many of the responses really focused on the idea that commercial airlines shouldn't just disappear, which is such a wild sentence to say in 2023, and this, again, mystery happened in 2014. It's such a... It's just like, oh, they shouldn't disappear. No shit. No shit. Like, why didn't we think about this before? Like, what the fuck? I just can never fully place this. So, in the interest of knowing where the plane is at all times, the International Civil Aviation Organization began requiring that the airliners manufactured after the 1st of January 2021 include autonomous tracking devices that broadcast their location once per minute. They updated the guidelines to mandate that aircraft designs approved after 2020 should include cockpit voice recorders that record 25 hours of conversations, instead of the standard that was two hours. Again, huge fucking difference. Makes all the bloody sense. Then the flight data recorders must either transmit data to a location on the ground or have the ability to float to the surface after a crash. To think that this is technology that is accessible and nobody had invested in it before is very scary. It's very scary. Like, this mystery would have been solved had the flight data recorders popped up on the surface. Then, to give greater coverage of planes manufactured before that date, Inmarsat changed the frequency of its handshakes from once per hour to once every 15 minutes. The European Aviation Safety Agency also mandates that the pingers on flight recorders should have a lifespan of at least 90 days, instead of previously having a span of 30 days. And also, by the 1st of January 2020, black boxes had to be ejectable and able to float. Like all of the regulations by the International Civil Aviation Organization, these only come into force if adopted by the member states, and this may take some time. So, from what I have seen, certain things have been adopted, and some of them are still to be taken on board. The question remains here. Can what happened to MH370 happen again? From knowing where the hatch to the avionics bay is based, to the short lifespan of the fingers, the inability of satellite searches to pinpoint the location of the aircraft, cameras in cockpits, the lack of them, like we spoke with AF-447, until we find a plane in this case and all of the recommendations get adopted, the answer is predominantly yes. 
another scary thought to lead us into the last few theories in this case. What if the investigators here have been searching in the wrong place all along? What if there is a much simpler explanation for what happened on the flight that night in March of 2014? Let me put you into the point of view of the theorists who don't believe the official narrative. And the main problem that they have is with the data and the debris. The theories in this realm really began since the plane had disappeared. And the doubts surrounding these calculations by Inmarsat and how quickly the searches have changed from South China Sea to Southern Indian Ocean sparked discussions online. People started creating these groups. And one such group that you have probably heard of if you have listened to any coverage on this case was named Independent Group. It comprised of scientists, researchers, and individuals who cooperated across continents in order to advance the search for the aircraft. These guys would be the first one who would always focus on the available scientific data and stick strictly to it, who would also counterappraise the analyses that were set out by the official experts, who would highlight the flawed logic of the Australian operations. And really the pioneers of like exposing the alternative side of events and giving us insights that the government and the official searches didn't. And then it started spreading. Obviously then people who aren't really experts in the area or scientists or oceanographers would get involved in different groups. And that's how we have the access to all of these alternative opinions and alternative theories. And if any of these alternative versions is correct, the debris found does not belong to Boeing 777. And if no debris from the plane has ever been found, and if all of the searches happened in the wrong place, does this not mean that aircraft simply was not in the southern Indian Ocean? That is the whole premise here. And now we're gonna go into some theories that try to explain how that would have happened. So, alternative theories. With them, I will be bringing you some of the information that I could only find in the book, just FYI. Some of these things I'm bringing you completely new, trying to fit them into these theories and into this story. And mostly because, yes, they're not mentioned anywhere else but in the Florence uh, the Shangi book. No debris belonging to MH370 can potentially be explained by fire. And I would just like to let you know, I haven't found any theories where they flow. It's like beginning to end about the cargo, about mangosteens and about batteries. And that's probably because there are no names that are ever dropped in connection with it, where it would be easier to then be like, oh, find information on that person. Who are they? Are they shady? Do they have something to do with this? But there are pages and pages in this report about the cargo in the final report published in 2018, which to me, more than anything, smells of some sort of cover-up. Not sure if it's because it's a simple theory, because of the amount of videos that I have seen on how batteries interact with each other and how the plane destruction occurs, or is it because I don't want to blame anyone without more evidence, or because I just can't explain why a plane would make a U-turn and end up in a different body of water miles away, or because nothing I read on the debris has convinced me the debris belongs to the plane. 
I personally think the simplest theory here might be the correct one. Possibly fire, something going wrong on the plane, and this could technically still happen if the pilots have taken the U-turn, or if they have just landed in South China Sea, which is most of the theories that we will be speaking about now. So the possibility of the plane having some sort of engine misfunction or like a fire on it and still taking a U-turn has actually been looked into by somebody in the book, this Boeing pilot called Kim Stewart. So let me outline that theory for you. In this theory, the fire would cut out all the means of communication, and then a decision would be made for an emergency landing, and this is what would explain the U-turn to the nearest or the most appropriate airport. It would also explain depressurization of the plane, and the pilots and all others on board would suffer hypoxia, the condition in which the body or part of the body is deprived of the oxygen. And after that, probably also hypothermia. So they would be extremely cold and they would be experiencing these symptoms and probably all of them, including the pilot and the co-pilot, would die prior to the aircraft crashing because of the lack of fuel. In this theory, if smoke was to have been noticed, it would lead to multiple messages, like a lot of beeping for both the cabin crew, like depending where it was, right, whether it was cockpit or the cabin crew, and then there would be a correct sequence that should be followed. And that's when the autopilot would switch to the manual maneuver of the plane. I will play you this video that would explain what the correct procedure would be, and this is a simulation. However, it's also very calm. Like, let me just state that. It's not even disturbing in a way of, like, nothing is extremely beeping and stuff. It's just like, oh, this is how we would handle a fire. Which, again, I don't know that that is the accurate representation. Like, I know, yes, maybe don't stress people out when it comes to simulations, but maybe do, because then they will be prepared if something like this was to ever happen. So I'll play just this video showing the appropriate response, the immediate response that the pilots should have taken, which is known as aviate, navigate, communicate. It's a rule that they are to follow, where they were to press the heading select button that would disengage the navigation from the autopilot, and then the plane should be aiming for the nearest landing strip. Engine failure number one. Engine fire. Number one. Okay. Heading select, runway heading one three five. Okay, that's heading good. selected. Autopilot one is on. Passing four hundred. Start ACAM actions. Lufthansa A380. Lufthansa three eight zero super. Engine failure, we're climbing straight at three thousand. I call you back. Roger, Lufthansa three eight zero super Engine one fire. Land ASAP in red. Mm-hmm. Thrust lever one idle. Number one confirmed. Engine one master off. Number one confirmed. Engine one fire push button push. Number one push button confirmed. Agent one after one second now discharge. ATC notify is notified. 
If fire after 23 seconds, then we have the second agent. Okay. Fire is fire out. Fire is out. Flap zero. Flaps zero. Continue procedure. What Kim points to is actually or can explain why the simulation is so quiet. Apparently there is no alarm for smoke on the planes. So there are fire alarms for certain things like heat detector on the engines, smoke detectors in the hold, but in the case that smoke appears in the cabin or the cockpit, there's only two ways to detect it. Smell, or vision. Yet, not a single improvement that I have read on this. Like, what do you mean there are no alarms that would be sounding and the fire was to take place? Shouldn't the most logical thing be it for the fire alarms to sound? I just... I have read so many things here that disturb me about flying that I cannot even begin to imagine. So, in this scenario, the pilot would either have to smell the smoke or see the smoke and then, in the state of panic, decide where it's coming from, what to do, follow the procedure. Also, if everything works, in the cabin now the passengers are putting their masks on. However, there's nothing that would trigger the pilot's mask. So the pilots would have to decide for themselves if and when they needed oxygen and grab their masks manually. And this is why for the passengers and the crew's survival, as soon as the depressurization was identified, it would be crucial for the plane to descend to the altitude where people can comfortably breathe. But what if the pilots didn't see the smoke? What if they didn't realize that there was anything wrong with the engine, there was fire going on, they wouldn't have put the masks on, and the plane manual is already switched between autopilot and manual control. In this scenario, the pilot would just have sort of enough senses before they would have completely been overtaken by the smoke to make the U-turn and possibly move the plane back onto the autopilot, because that is the only way if we are assuming that nobody's conscious on this flight, the co-pilot and the pilot included, nobody's manning this plane, for the plane to somehow remain in the air until the fuel was depleted by 819, if you believe the Marsat data. Or if you believe the fire engine, like if you believe that there was anything wrong with the plane and it collapsed in South China Sea instead, then this could have also been true, however, minus the U-turn. So the pilot didn't actually go for the U-turn, rather the plane crashed then and there. What Kim had said is that the absence of any field of debris, so bags, clothes, seats of the plane, different parts of the plane, like different parts of the wreckage, mangosteens, batteries, cargo, suitcases, none of that appearing for this many years, it would suggest that the plane ended up gliding down and ditching in almost flat patch in the southern Indian Ocean. And I think when it comes to the simple theories, a lot of us would still want to believe it being possible with the U-turn and with the Inmarsat data, because if we believe into simple theories and also believe that the place that the plane crashed in South China Sea crashed then and there, that means we have been lied to for nine years. That means all of the searches have been taking place in the wrong part of the world. It means that the families and the public had just been lied to and given wrong data 
for nine years. So I think like a lot of people will still want to believe simple theory and you know, no pilot actually doing this to the passengers and to the passengers' flight. Nobody actually having to take responsibility for it. It's being, being an accident. However, that the data is also correct. In this case, just like with many theories, we have to imagine, we have to suppose quite a few bits. Main one here that goes against it would be transponders and communication systems failing. They could fail due to the heat and fire damage, but a lot of people still believe that transponder was switched off manually by somebody. Like, people swear by that online. So even if ACARS was to have had misfunction, like some fire was to break out in the avionics bay, transponder one is still not up for debate by many people online. How unlikely would it have been for the plane to travel on autopilot after a fire or any engine misfunction? Like, if something was to truly be wrong and then the plane is just on autopilot, like, going off for seven hours on its own accord with everybody on board dead and something supposedly very much wrong that had caused that whole issue. There's a lot and a lot of things that go against this theory, just like with the other ones we have spoken about. Other flaws that pop to mind here in the same realm, pilots should have been taught how to act around fire, you have just watched a simulation, they should have just remained calm, but also then not switch the transponder off, rather actually focus on communicating well with the controls on the ground in order to go to the emergency landing strip. Batteries in the cargo would have been in the back of the plane, not near the cockpit or the avionics bay to like influence the system and cause it to switch off. If we are saying that batteries are how the fire had been caused. If we trust the data, the plane is in the air for seven more hours, so this must be the slowest fire ever, or just the unluckiest event where Everybody has been taken out by this fire, the plane hadn't been depressurized, and then it had just been left on autopilot to take this whole plane without anybody being in command of it for seven hours to the spot where it will finally land. Because in this theory, we don't have anybody to blame. The plane is on autopilot. The pilot might have, in an attempt to save the situation, made a U-turn, and then something had happened incapacitating everybody on the plane. There's nobody going the effort of flying the plane until 8.19 a.m. into the middle of nowhere for any sort of sinister reason, or taking over the plane to fly it for other seven hours, if we're speaking hijackers, somebody maliciously doing it as a passenger. What if this theory only works if something happened due to the cargo and the plane crashed where it was last spotted on the radar. That particular theory will be proposed by Florence. The short of it is that, according to her, MH370 may have been intercepted by two US AWX planes. The cargo manifest shows that the plane carried 2.5 tons of electronics, including lithium batteries, walkie-talkies, and accessories, the Motorola consignment we spoke about in part one. But this cargo was not scanned, possibly containing sensitive US technology. 
Now, Florence discovered that two US AVAX planes were seen near MH370. She speculated that the planes would have asked the pilot, Zachary Shah, to land the plane so they could inspect the cargo, however, he would have refused this. And as a result, the AVAX planes shot down the aircraft over the South China Sea. Let us break this down with what supports this theory and also what goes against it. So, in this theory, US made a device of high technological value. So, it's a bit like feline semiconductor, but not so much. It's something that's hidden in this cargo, which is why it hadn't been scanned. Plane takes off as planned 45 minutes after midnight, and this spying device is something you would not want scanned, but also the Chinese wanted it, so the US had to secure it. How would they do it? They had a perfect opportunity here because this was a night flight. It was a passenger flight, so what they had to do was intercept the plane at a perfect time, get the cargo, and then the plane would just continue its route to Beijing. So they had to land the plane, take the cargo, and then the plane is just back to Beijing, and apparently the planes in Beijing are arriving every single day delayed, so this wouldn't really cause any alarms. It's an overnight flight, everybody's gonna be asleep on the flight, and this can all be done, nobody will suspect anything. This is the part that more than anything scared me to, to my core, because yes, it's, I think it's a main flaw, because I have never read of anything like this before. Like, the flight being intercepted by the whole plane going down or chilling at the aircraft anywhere, somewhere safe to land, while the cargo is then exploded. Like, what's happening with 239 people on board? Cool, minus the pilot and the co-pilot. Like, what, the flight attendant, the cabin crew are just like, yeah, chill. What, what is happening with the passengers? Are they all asleep? Are they all gassed? Like, that's part that's not portrayed to me and it scares me. Like, imagine you fall asleep on a red-eye flight, which already is impossible, and you just wake up and it's like, oh, hey, your plane had been delayed. Why had it been delayed? You never know, because maybe you have actually been detoured for some cargo to be taken and you will never know. Like, that's the part where I'm like, yo, Florence, <laughs> this is where you need to elaborate. Like, where have we read this before? Has this been done before? How have we covered it? How would that be executed? Because that's the part that scares me as a passenger on a plane to begin with. Like, imagine a flight being delayed and you're like, oh yeah, that's just a normal occurrence. No, you were asleep as was everybody else, and something happened during that time. Scary, scary fucking shit. Anyways, cool. This apparently happens in this theory, right? And there were two military exercises at that time, one of them being Cope Tiger, which is the annual exercise that is meant to improve readiness and the ability of participating forces to operate together. So, think drills on land and the sea, focus on aerial defense, and the team of this year's one that the US, Thailand, and Singapore were to participate in was search and rescue. So the question here is, did the military help out with the searches? Were they on location? Were they possibly here to cover this thing up? Like, this would have been perfect for them. Like, a real-life representation of what they will deal with, a war game of sorts. That is the setup. We have the US after something that was in that cargo compartment, and then we have the whole 
of the military exercise and the soldiers that are going to help clean that up. So now, the plan is put into action. In order to render the plane completely invisible and intercept it, like remove it off the radars, two AWACS planes would have to surround the MH370 and they would start communicating with the pilot. And the perfect opportunity for that would be Igari as a waypoint. So just as the connection would happen between one airspace to the other, just as there to say goodbye to Malaysian airspace and then move towards Vietnamese one. I could not find a video AVAX taking over a plane, like of anything similar to what Florence is describing here. However, I will play the one where they explain what AVAXs are. They're called Eyes in the Sky. And just pay attention as you watch this video by how many people are behind monitoring these planes, right? How many people are in the control rooms is what I'm trying to say. To serve this mission, NATO operates a fleet of Boeing E-3A. Different from others, this aircraft is equipped with the Airborne Warning and Control System, AWACS, that is a long-range radar domes installed on the fuselage, providing air surveillance, control, and communications for the Allies. So what is actually the function of this radar, and how does it work? The term radar refers to radio detection and ranging, with the purpose of identifying the presence of an object and determining its position. Radar systems can detect not just airborne targets, but also maritime vessels in locations like the North Sea and the Mediterranean Sea. Operators can identify and monitor enemy aircraft flying at low altitudes over a variety of terrain, as well as provide directions to friendly aircraft flying in the same area. Moreover, with the bird's eye view, the aircraft could provide faster coverage, a longer line of sight, and a wider observation area. Interestingly, the radar coverage of an E-3A flying at 9,150 meters equal to 30,000 feet is 312,000 square kilometers. It means that three E-3As in overlapping orbits can cover all of Central Europe with complete radar coverage. Had everything gone to plan, right, the AVAXs would remove this plane off the radar, they would take over, they would be in Zachary's ear telling him to land the plane elsewhere so they can take the cargo, and then Zachary was just going to take off, without questioning anything ever, and also land the plane in Beijing, the passengers would be none the wiser, the plane would just be delayed, that's a regular occurrence. However, nothing was going according to the plan in this theory. In this theory, also, the pilot is very much a hero, the complete opposite from everything we have been hearing so far. So, keeping his cool, he would tell them he's en route to Beijing, and he's not going to comply with the military orders. So, maybe even the pilot had the time to activate the Tango code. This is to inform the radars, towards hijacking, immediately before all of the other communications would get jammed. This would have been supported by a report in Malaysian newspaper on the 13th of March, stating that the Tango Code had been activated. 
Zucker here, however, refuses to land the plane, he continues to fly it, and this is when the AOX planes start firing warning shots. There were witness testimonies by people that Florence has interviewed, and also from the news reports at that time, in that area that support this. They have heard explosion, loud noises, large objects falling from the sky near South China Sea. In part one, we have mentioned how the plane had been spotted above Cambodia. What if this was actually true? And the pilot, here threatened, might have just continued to fly, but with a different idea. To find an emergency landing strip where these AVAX planes cannot reach him. So, AVAX planes had to intervene. They decided to disperse rather than to be caught on the Chinese radar. And they realized they were out of options, like, fuck the cargo, fuck protecting this cargo and bringing it into the US. They decided to rather shoot this plane down, otherwise their secret is going to be made public. It could have been the last resort to stop the plane and also the special cargo from falling into China's hands, because this would have been the complete opposite of what they would have wanted. And then the Coke Tiger was to come in. The cleanup was about to begin. This in-flight explosion could have been possible if we were to trust, again, one account, one version of events, one report, on the pilot supposedly making an SOS message around 2.43 a.m. The source of this supposed emergency call to the ground controls was never identified. However, now debris in the region would be spotted by nodders. So, Tom Nod, that was mentioned in the Netflix documentary a lot, is this project that was owned by Colorado-based satellite company. So, the people there, like, it was a crowdsource project, and the people that would participate and put their input online would be able to identify objects and places in satellite images. They called themselves nodders, and they would spot a plentiful in the region of South China Sea. However, this would never be properly acknowledged by any officials or the government of any country, really. They are mentioned, Cindy Henry, for example, is featured heavily in the documentary. When it comes to Tom Nods and those pictures, it is really what you see. I don't know, to the naked eye, again, to somebody who is not a professional, who doesn't have any experience in analyzing satellite imagery, it is very much just seeing shadows of things. However, to these people, this would prove that the plane had indeed landed in South China Sea, rather than it had crashed there. Since the impact location was precisely known, inside of Vietnamese waters, based off of where AVAX would have communicated to Coke Tiger that they have shot a plane, this cleanup operation would have been well organized. Now, now, for the shocker, when I told you my jaw had dropped once I read this paragraph, and it's just one of those things that I have, like, tried to fact-check online with so many sources, and it's only mentioned in the book, okay? Basic cells. So, at this point, at this point, according to the testimony of former Bombardier employee Christian Corcelles, bits and pieces of debris were being collected as early as the same day. He was also convinced that he even saw one of the black boxes being carried ashore. Where does he think he saw it? Okay, according to this man, there should be a record somewhere of this, because he was zapping through the channels on his TV, 
and he saw photos on a Vietnamese channel that had haunted him ever since. There was a short report that featured about five pictures, and he was sure that they were of this debris. According to Christian, he first saw the front undercarriage. He has enough experience to know exactly what he was looking at. Then he saw the vertical stabilizer with the Malaysia Airlines logo on it being pulled up from the surface. And he also saw two people stepping on shore, holding one of the black boxes that was in some kind of a see-through casing full of water. Florence called him out on how the black box was apparently carried out in a plastic container full of water, but he said that that is what he saw. However, if this was actually broadcast somewhere, other people would have seen it, and I have dug through the internet and cannot find anything about a black box ever being pulled out of water, and nobody else that Florence interviewed ever did. So again, might be a certain flaw when it comes to this theory. So let's break it a bit further apart. We've spoken a bit about Nodders and their whole theory based off of the satellite images. So Cindy Hendry, who was featured in the Netflix documentary, she is a photographer and she realized she had the eye for spotting the parts of the plane, looking at satellite images, and then matching the cloud cover in order to figure out the location. She would be going through these images, and she had said she kind of discarded a lot of empty images that were just the blackness of the sea, and this is when she stumbled across what she thought were white shapes. She compared her findings to the schematics of B-777 and said that she believed she was looking at the plane debris. No authorities have ever verified Cindy's findings, and Tomnod ended up enlisting some 2.3 million internet users, but its virtual search was ultimately deemed inconclusive. I don't even think the website is public anymore, as in it's not online. You can still find the images that were used in the documentary and that are there. And again, you could tell me what you see in them, but I think it is a big idea of Florence's that it supports her theory, it supports this alternative theory, and it would had it been found conclusive and had the officials taken it on board. But of course, the whole idea here, if there was a cover-up, if they're following the data, that it will never be taken on board. Other supporting factors that Flores points out towards her theory, and if I were really to pick one battle that she was fighting in this book, is political connections, that everybody's in on it and everybody's connected and it, you know, starts all the way from the top. So that in the aftermath of 8th of March, immediately actually that evening, the office of the President of the United States was making calls, and that these calls were being recorded. So the Minister of Defense of Malaysia was speaking with Obama that there is a transcript of this phone call online. They had a call during that night after the plane had vanished, but there was no mention of the plane whatsoever. From that moment on, the narrative had to be shaped. All the publications in the US, like the Wall Street Journal, CNN to begin with as well, all of them were supporting the version where the plane would still be flying for hours, and this was long before Inmarsat data. The papers would reinforce the idea that something sinister had happened, and this would be respected media sources, diverting attention from a crash in South China Sea. 
Then with 134 passengers out of 227 being Chinese, you would expect China to contribute a lot more when it came to the searches. However, they would lay low. They provided 10% of the Australian budget to the searches, and while the searches in Australia were happening, China was actually building its own military base. Begging for a question, why was this their focus? And why is the money going to it? Is it to hide something? France would be the next to join the narrative and join the chorus of the nations that were trying to drill in that the plane indeed crashed in the southern Indian Ocean. And this is, according to Florence, who, by the way, is French from all accounts, so she is here shitting on her own country and how they dealt with it, in order for France not to compromise its relationship with all of these allied nations over different debris that is about to be found. The UK joins with the Inmarsat narrative, and what supports all of these countries working together is that if Malaysia had been responsible on its own, that would have been exposed, right? They would have been crucified on their own from Malaysian airlines to the aircraft to the government. They would have been thrown under the bus. However, however, if the full responsibility doesn't fall just on them, if there is some sort of cover-up, then it's in everybody's best interest at heart not to throw Malaysia under the bus, but rather to keep this covered up and keep it among themselves. In Florence's theory, the MH17 incident is also connected in the most sinister way, may I add so. So, according to her, Putin and the Chinese president were getting very close. MH370 goes down, supposedly in the hands of the US, and mostly the flight had had Chinese citizens. So, Putin tells the Chinese president, leave it for me, and then MH17 happens, apparently in this plotline, by the order of the president himself. And the message is clear, you mess with us, we are going to mess with you. And it's some sort of, like, revenge plotline in order to keep everybody shushed. What supports this is that the Chinese president and the Russian president have met up just before, like a few hours before MH17 was shot down on the 17th of July, and there's even a picture to confirm that. The flaws. With Florence's theory, the loose ends here that even Florence calls out was things like, was the cargo meant for China or for the benefit of the US? It doesn't seem to be a clear-cut answer. Like, who would have wanted... who would have wanted this cargo based off of what? Like, this whole theory depends. Like, is it the Chinese? Is it the US? Where would that aircraft have landed if the whole basis is this precious cargo on board? Would Zachary really challenge the orders? Because he's either extreme villain or he is a hero. There's just no in-between. What would the pilot have done in this type of situation? The black box is taken out, which would have been the number one thing. It would have been something that would have probably solved this case, right? Like, if we had the data from the black boxes. However, this narrative is supported by one person only. Another thing I looked into is Coke Tiger, and exercises are very much what Florence had described. 
It is a ton of military in one place doing the practiced air-to-air -air tactics, weapons delivery, coordination with airborne early warning systems and different simple communications. So they are apparently also in the air. There are some airborne commands that are happening during this time. However, they these exercises would have started on the 10th. So there was the presence of the military from the 8th as they were all arriving for this military exercise, but the actual exercises were taking place between 10th and 21st of March 2014, which doesn't completely fit into Florence's theory. And the main flaw here is where would the bodies have been disposed of? and how many people are then in on the secret of disposing of the aircraft and 239 bodies. Because that is truly the question. Like how many politicians then? How many people in the military? Hundreds of them, if Cope Tiger was primarily then focused on this instead of other search and rescue operation, like instead of other military exercises that they were there for, if this was now their sole focus. And not a single person, not a single person for nine years would have opened their mouth. This theory would mean that everything was fabricated from the get-go, and the families have been lied to for nine years. It would mean that the plan had been put into action long before that plane even took off, that nobody on that plane stood a chance, and that the debris was strategically planted or didn't come from this plane to begin with. For the sake of remaining completely unbiased, Florence calls out when everybody conjures up a Hollywood-like plot, but her theory sounds the most movie-like to me. I put, would I watch a movie based on it, like, would I watch something with the two AVAX planes and then the passengers somehow being knocked out on this flight and then being transported to this random location for the cargo to be exported and then them going on their merry way and landing in another country and being none the wiser about everything? Yes, I think that will make for a good movie. But that's exactly it. Do I believe this is 100% how this went down? No. I don't fully know, because truly I would have to presume quite a lot of things for that version of events to be true. So to offer a simple scenario, a simpler scenario of the South China Sea theory, we have one last theory to go through. This theory would be supported by the witness accounts from the northeastern coast of Malaysia and the fishermen that reported highly unusual sights and sounds. So the explosions, the fan of the jet engine, the low-lying plane, around the time that the plane was supposed to be near Vietnamese waters. This theory would also be supported by the apparent 2.43 a.m. SOS call that was reported in very few of the news articles at the time. Then, by the communication at 2.37 with Ho Chi Minh, stating that the plane is still flying. According to this theory, the plane would have then suffered a fault with the engine, an explosion would have occurred, and it would have crashed in Vietnamese waters. What nodders would then see on the satellite images the next day, and what would be compared to plenty of satellite pictures, 
by people in South China Sea would then make complete sense. Compared to that, between daybreak around 6 a.m. on the 8th of March and the time that the plane supposedly crashed in southern Indian Ocean, 8.19 a.m., according to the Inmarsat Pings, there was nobody, not a single soul, not a fisherman, not a boat, not a vessel, nobody that saw a plane flying towards the ocean or falling into the ocean after a nosedive or a controlled ditch. Then, once the aircraft supposedly crashed here, the largest ever search operation had been underway, all manned by thousands of the best professionals. And after the underwater searches that had taken place for years and were conducted by multiple different agencies, they would return empty-handed. There is a principle mentioned in the book called Oxam Razor that suggests that among two possible explanations for an event, the one that needs the fewest assumptions is usually the correct one. While the families await communication on whether further searches will be approved, the theorists continue speculating what theory would simplify the greatest mystery in the history of aviation. Have we spent nine years not letting the truth get in the way of a good story? Or was the truth in front of us all along? And that is the story of the disappearance of the Malaysian flight MH370. This do be a long one. I'm not gonna lie. This is a journey. This has been a journey that I have taken you on. And as always, with the mystery cases, if you are new to this channel, leave your theories, sort of beginning to end, your opinions, anything that I have missed out, because there will probably be plenty, I try to really summarize everything that I have read in a two-parter, anything that you might know of, and like the sources and how you know of it, and I will be putting all of the information in the pinned comments so that everybody coming onto the channel, onto the video, can see it firsthand. And I am not going to retire. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to retire my, like, 30, shut up. I mean, I will now uh, go on to a lighter topic next. And possibly, yes, see if Florence gets back to me to answer the list of, I don't know how many questions there is on that list by this point, but there's a lot. Let's just say there's a lot, and I would be forever thankful if she did, because she has researched this for years and would probably be privy to a lot more information or would know how to find it compared to this amateur over here. But if you like deep dives and want more of them, make sure you let me know of that, engage with this video, subscribe, like, all of that good stuff, and I shall be seeing you with a very silly video next, let's just say that. June is going to bring along a lighter topic, at least one lighter topic. I have read like a paragraph with this, okay? For somebody who likes deep dives, I can be extremely superficial to begin with. This is how I decide to cover a topic. It's a court case, kind of, I think, from like a paragraph that I have read. And it's about a certain establishment in the UK, let's just say that, it is very dear to my heart. 
it will be a video in the Silly Billy Awards uh, realm and I will love it. I'm gonna just say I will try to dig up as much information about it as possible, but yes, I think even if I do, it will still be under 30 minutes, which is unprecedented. It, it makes me shake a little bit, I'm not gonna lie. As a long-form lover, just having a video out there that is under 30 minutes long, it makes me a bit disturbed. It doesn't sit right with me, it doesn't sit right with me. Stop being so dramatic, leave. Okay, I will be seeing you again in June. Maya out. Ugh, why are you so dramatic over the worst fucking 30 minute video? They will love it. They will fucking love it. They wish for it. Every single time you upload it, like another three hour video, you stupid idiot. Okay, Maya out. Maya out. I appreciate you. Bye.